This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And this is the day after Christmas. It is Boxing Day in what used to be Great Britain, now England. And the celebrations, nonetheless, continue because New Year's is coming, first night is coming, and, well, there is festivity in the air, although, frankly, it's been kind of a gray, dull, misty, not all that pleasant weekend for the most part. But still, I was wondering, Buzz if and Dan, if you could share with us if you have had the holiday spirit this year. I think it's really hard to have it in light of what's happening in Gaza and Israel and what is happening uh, in Ukraine. But still, time to be merry. Right. I, in, some, in some ways, Boxing Day feels like we're referring to pugilism, but I don't think that's what it refers to. No, it isn't indeed. <laughs> I want to disagree with Newman on something. I think this is Dan. The weather has been terrific this weekend. I feel like this was like, I don't know, October or September weather that we got over these last couple of days. And it feels pretty good. So for a late December, we always talk about uh, climate change and warming weather. Well, for the end of December, what we just experienced these last five days has been terrific. Just, uh, I just want to point out, Daniel Torres, <laughs> if you split them in half, on one side, it's Brazilian. On the other side, it's Spanish. He's not. He's lived in New England his whole life, and yet he finds this weather what like terrific. Uh, it was great. Terrific. Bill Newman said it was been misty and kind of I don't know chilly. It gave me the sense that the weather was. I think it's been great. I mean, look, I'm not. I'm not happy about climate change, but the weather's been great. Yeah, I'm not happy about climate change, but here it is: <laughs> 50 degrees, 45 degrees. It uh, feels like uh, beginning of spring. It's the end of December. And we have had no snow. And there's no snow. And there's no snow. And, and, and I went to a friend's house. They had a dinner party for about a dozen of us last night, uh, a Christmas dinner party. And uh, on the way, I just kept, uh, the visibility was like, I don't know, maybe about 60 feet in front of me um, there at about 1,300 feet above sea level. And all I kept thinking of was ringing in my ears, then one foggy Christmas Eve. And... Um, we had no Rudolph. We had to rely on uh, on uh, our headlights. But uh, I don't know. Dan Torres, I can't call this weather terrific. I want to see snow. And last year, when we did have snow, it was so wet that every tree that I saw fell over or had broken branches. That, that's just a problem for you where you live. Well, I think it's a problem <laughs> for just, all of us wherever we live. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It should it. be a snowy New England, you know. I agree. We should have that. Again, it's uh, an odd kind of thing. Hey, yeah. Things are changing. Yes, Bill. Things are changing. There's a climate <laughs> disaster going on. The end of civilization, or in the earth, actually, as we know it, is at was is at risk. The earth is at risk. And what did you just say? Ca look, catastrophic. I think, I think Nero said he let. Put down your fiddle, please. Catastrophic is the problem here. I look, we have serious challenges. I don't know, maybe I'm a mild optimist, but 
we have the ability to solve all of these problems. Yes, things will change. Humans will have to adapt and we'll have to make challenges. The problem is people don't want to pay for those additional costs. Do you want to transition out of, of oil and natural gas. What's the alternative? People still want electricity, and we don't have a good supply of alternative electricity. Can I just add this? We've been talking about uh, solar. We've been talking about wind, offshore wind, and yet even we bring on some activists. They say, oh, yeah, they don't want that because it's, you know, it's close to their home. It's close to nature. You're going to change all these things. Well, the real crux of the issue is People want energy, and we don't have an alternative supply that won't contribute to CO2 emissions, unless you want to support nuclear, which then nobody does. So that's my, you, know, you want my trouble with this in, in climate change and weather? It's, it's that. We don't have a strong supply of alternative energy to meet our needs that exist today. And there we have it. And therefore, we'll sign off <laughs> because <laughs> this is the end of the world as we know it. Thank you very much, Dan Torres. Such an inspiring Christmas and New Year's that, message. That was, he did that in the name of optimism, Bill. Yes. That's the name of optimism. It is, I, I'm sorry, it, it's not credible if you think that we're just going to do it through solar and wind, especially the way even some activists don't want that, those projects because it's going to you know, interfere with, with uh, trees and uh, you know, living near their homes, or it's not feasible, or whatever it is. It's we're, we're debating the small details, and you just said it's catastrophic. So what's the alternative? What's a large-scale, non-CO2-emitting energy source? Give me one. Well, there isn't. Then I don't know what to tell you. Humans will adapt. Oh, good. By the way, George Carlin taught me all of this. I was just this is all from George Carlin. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for thank you for the citation because the I Earth was... will be fine. Humans are in trouble. Uh, <laughs> you know what? You know what happened when George Carlin abused the radio waves, Dan Torres. I almost did. I almost swore. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to have to censor myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead, Bill. Am I wrong though? I mean, do we have a alternative? source of energy that's renewable, that can produce the energy that human beings are the demanding. The problem is not with production. The problem is with storage of energy. That's what we are uh, trying to advance as a, as a way to store it. I think that we do all the things that you mentioned and, and true hydroelectric and a lot of other sources, but, but then including the when we distinguish fusion from fission, sure. there are energy sources available, but storage is a big one for the solar and wind alternatives. Or and, retrofitting. And, but it's also, I think, Dan, it's just a matter of um, people just not committing themselves. Uh, we just have to keep screaming or, that it or, is dire or, and people have to change. Or maybe the problem is we need to retrofit our homes, buildings, make things more energy efficient so we don't lose so much energy and we won't need as much. Maybe that's the solution to all of this, but the, everything right now is just set up for us not to succeed if the crisis is as big as we claim it is all the time on these airwaves, right? Bill Call said it's almost earth-shattering, earth-ending. I'm not sure I agree. That's all. Okay, I'll modify my statement. The earth won't end, but human beings as a species will be catastrophically affected, and so will many other life forms. How's that for a revision? Mm, Going okay. better? Uh, slightly, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I mean, I just think humans will have to adapt to this weather. It's in a, we're going at three degrees right now of, of uh, increase in temperature, meaning yes, islands are going to suffer, 
And I think like if we don't help and save them, you know, it's going to fall on us because we know what the results will be. You know, there's, can I just tell you something broke out from, I want to say the North pole recently, one of these icebergs. Oh, I thought times, this was a Santa Claus three, story. Well, hold on, <laughs> but we could, but it's three times the size of New York city. Yeah. I mean, that is a massive. Well, Nebraska is, you know, is suffering an historic uh, storm right now. And when you say we'll adapt, I don't know how we adapt to tornadoes, and I don't know how we adapt to increased hurricanes, and I don't know how we, we adapt to, you know, the kind of changes that we're seeing that really are, I, I, you know, I just echo Bill, catastrophic in so many different ways. And we, what we have to do is adapt to the idea that it's, going to happen, that it's inevitable, that it's happening right now, that it's accelerating at a pace that is very difficult, and and just commit our resources to making change, I think, Bill. Well, there's one other thing that I think needs to be stated, and that is that the assumption that we need massive new energy sources and the ability to store it is premised on the assumption that we will not change our lifestyles. And that is not necessarily true. Uh, if we were not trucking uh, produce from one coast to the other so that uh, we can have uh, fresh California fruit, relatively fresh, um, uh, you know, throughout winter months in New England, for example, uh, as a small example, uh, we would not use so much energy. So, uh, I, and I do think that the issue is significantly can we transfer uh, our, our dependence on uh, fossil fuels to some alternative energy, and that matters a lot. That gets to the storage problem you indicate, but it also, I think, raises the issue, are we going to be, in fact, cognizant of what we're doing to the earth or not? And our lifestyles and what we demand, particularly the richest countries and the richest people, demand uh, whether we're going to satisfy those demands or not will have a lot to do with whether we have a future. Well, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about retrofitting. I mean, that's that's the whole point, is if you're more efficient with the energy that you are using, you could use less of it. But I don't see that currently on the forefront of anybody's mind to saying, yes, let's create a, a, a mechanisms where people could be more efficient in their energy use, which would mean we would need less energy and maybe we could combine alternative energies and less need for energy to actually create a more sustainable environment. But I don't see that going. I see human beings, people leave the lights on all the time. People are throwing things away that don't need to be Their Their homes are not insulated. They're just wasting a bunch of energy. And you can you imagine every home that we have throughout the country? I mean, Look, it's either going to be large-scale uh, offshore wind projects, hydroelectric, nuclear power. I mean, California was going to close down the the largest nuclear plant in the state, and now they've extended its life for five years. Um, it produces, ready, 9% of the total energy need of California, just one nuclear power plant. But it's sitting on a fault, Right. Yes, but again, oh, there's that's no problem. Well, what do you do? Shut it down and just tell people, hey, we just lost 9% of our total electricity production. I mean, 9%? One facility produces 9%. I don't know what to tell you guys. Well, I don't know. I came in this morning saying, well, 
Dan Torres <laughs> will have the answer, and that's the important thing for us. I always try. Yeah. You know, at least I'm trying. We appreciate it. You're welcome. We will be back. We're going to be speaking with Professor Amilcar Shabazz. We want to talk about Kwanzaa right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Massachusetts Ice Hockey hits the ice at the Mullen Center for the first time in 2024 for a clash against regional rival UConn on Friday, January 5th at 7 p.m. Enjoy an evening of family-friendly fun and see some of the best hockey in the Northeast. Get tickets at umassathletics.com slash tickets. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're all invited to Northampton's most beloved family-friendly event, First Night Northampton, Sunday, December 31st, over 20 venues full of music, circus arts, jugglers, puppets, hundreds of performances. One button opens every door. For more info and where to buy buttons, visit firstnightnorthampton.org. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We want to give pr Professor Amilcar Shabazz credit. He was with us on Skype, and now, oops, he's calling me. Wait a second. Let me see. Amilcar, you are live on the radio, but you are on my phone. Why don't you call us on the studio line, and then we'll connect. And we apologize for Skype having failed you, apparently, but you were connected with us a while ago. So call us on our studio line. Do you have that line number? Ah, I don't think we even have a regular phone connection anymore. It's I must say technology is a wonderful thing when it works, and, and not so wonderful when it doesn't work. So we do want to talk about Kwanzaa because, of course, we've, uh, uh, with the holiday, with Christmas being yesterday, we did not have our usual Black in the Valley segment, and we want Professor uh, Amilcar Shabazz to uh, talk with us about Kwanzaa and its celebration, its origin, its history, and what it means to the African-American community here in the Valley and throughout Western Massachusetts, as well as across the country. And uh, we look forward to uh, having the professor with us in just a few moments. Uh, I was wondering if, well, here he is. Professor Amilcar Shabazz, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your making extraordinary efforts to connect today. Uh, Kwanzaa, uh, 
Can you give us a bit of the history of Kwanzaa, what it is, why it is, and then we'll talk about its significance to uh, the African-American community? Great, great. Uh, In the manner we do in Kwanzaa, open in the uh, words from the key Swahili language, Heri za Kwanzaa, Heri za Kwanzaa, which is simply uh, happy, happy Kwanzaa. And the other tradition is to ask a question, uh, Habarigani, Habarigani which is what's the news of which you respond with the principle for the day. Cause there's seven principles and each day after Christmas marks the seven days of Kwanzaa and the seven principles of, um, uh, of which are noted each day, which today is unity or Umoja. Uh, but okay. But first we back up into, into some history lessons. You, you know, I'm the historian, so I enjoy giving the, giving the historical context. Um, 1960s, uh, revolution is uh, raising its head, sweeping the planet. Uh, it's raised its head in Cuba. The United States has launched Bay of Pigs and all of the kinds of attempts to, to kill off uh, uh, Fidel Castro and to try to snuff out that revolution. Revolution is raising its head in, in Asia, in Africa, in, uh, uh, throughout the Americas. Uh, and so the response is, and even in Europe and places, revolution is raising its head. And so where, what, what's the situation of black folks here in the United States? Black folks in the United States, uh, hundreds of years enslaved, coming out of slavery in 1865, 1866, um, brief period of reconstruction with promises made, none of them kept. No land, no land redistributed to them, no reparations, uh, no efforts to really help them reconstruct their lives as free people. And so what happens? They fall back into slavery just by another name, a neo-slavery, a new form of slavery. And again, they're oppressed. Again, they're miseducated. Again, they're deprived. They're exploited. And that goes on in a system we call Jim Crow. Jim Crow segregated society, Jim Crow racial hierarchy of white supremacy goes on unabated, unchecked um, until in the 20th century, massive struggles are waged to, to attack that Jim Crow system, to dismantle it, to kill Jim Crow, as it were, of which we finally get on a legal level uh, a major uh, precedent with the Supreme Court overturning Plessy versus Ferguson in 1954 with the Brown decision, Brown v. Board of Ed decision. All right, but that's 54. Again, you have to go to the streets to even make that decree official, make that decree really implemented. And so here we are in the 60s. Most schools, most schools where African-Americans attend, 100 percent African-American. In 1966, when Kwanzaa was started, I was attending an elementary school in southeast Texas, a city called Beaumont. My elementary school, West Oakland, 100 percent black. No white teachers, no white administrators, no white secretaries, no white janitors, no white classmates, nothing, nada. The only thing white was in the hand-me-down books we got talking about Dick and Jane uh, in their little dog spot. Okay, so completely the same hierarchical, segregated, racist, white supremacist, whatever else you want to call it, it was still going on in 1966 when I'm in school, and that's not unique to me. That's still the majority black experience. 
okay, despite the sit-ins, despite Dr. King, despite the march on Washington or farce on Washington in 63, it's, it's still the same in 1966. And coming off of the Watts riot in Los Angeles, California, or Watts rebellion, which is now black people starting to say, hey, no more of this police brutality, no more of this Jim Crow treatment, even in a place like L.A., that Dr. Karinga, Milana Karinga, said we need something else, okay? All of the political movement and the legislation and everything else we're doing is not sufficient. It's like Dan talk, talking about when, when, when power isn't going to cut it, okay? He said this is not going to cut it. We need something more, more enduring, more internal, more powerful to sustain us and to let us know and to affirm us that 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 we are that that our Africanness is not a badge of inferiority, is not a badge of of mark that marks us for oppression, and that we are a people of dignity, and that we have certain principles that bind us together that we must we must come together around and celebrate and 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 and, and, and take to heart, and that's where he launches the cultural revolution, known as uh, Kwanzaa with the Nguzo Saba, the seven principles at the core of it. That's the background I'll give you. Kwanzaa, I think, is uh, celebrated uh, in, in the context of the holidays, of, often of uh, Hanukkah and Christmas and New Year's. And I'm wondering if you could uh, share with us the uh, background or the uh, reasoning behind creating Kwanzaa and the seven days of Kwanzaa at this time of year. And it's, well, frankly, it's... it's and the winter solstice. And the winter solstice. And the winter solstice, too. Sure, it's a time of reflection. It's a time of, of in-gathering. You know, um, a lot of times families have, got, have gotten together on Christmas Day. There's, there's a sense of reunion and folks coming together. So building off that energy then, you can keep the people together, keep the family and the community together by going the very next day with Kwanzaa. Um, but also, again, it's also a celebration. It's patterned on the harvest festivals in Africa. And, and therefore, it, it is a time to sort of celebrate, to reflect on the harvest of the past calendar year, all of the things that have happened, good and bad, um, and, and, and to then take stock of, 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 of the community and where you want to go into the new year, into 2024, which is where the, the last day of Kwanzaa occurs, January 1. Is Kwanzaa celebrated uh, throughout the country, or are there uh, regions and particular cities where, and, and uh, states where Good it, is, it, is, it is more, more, I don't know if popular is the right word, but more celebrated? Good question. Um, Kwanzaa is everywhere. Kwanzaa is in Japan. I, I follow a writer there. I've met him before named Bay McNeil, African-American brother out of Brooklyn, out of New York City, who's, who's married a, a woman, a Japanese woman and, and made his life in Japan. And I was seeing him the other day. He's got Kwanzaa going in Japan. So, you know, it's, it's really in, throughout the African community at this point. But essentially, it starts in Los Angeles in 1966. It circulates to a number of big cities uh, like New York and, and uh, even Houston, Texas, different places 
pretty early there in the 60s and, and 70s. But I'll be honest, in, in smaller cities or places like Austin, Texas, that's when I encounter it in about 1980, 81. And it was uh, brought to us by a woman, who, a school teacher, who had relocated to the Austin area from, from California, I think from L.A., and she uh, knew of it and thought it would be good, and so she shared it with folks. Initially, my reaction wasn't, wasn't all that super enthusiastic, you know, like a lot of people, oh, this is fake, this isn't real, this isn't this, this isn't that. But as I started getting into it more and we brought it into the community and started sharing it with people, you know, I, I would see the, a, a subtle way in which it would work a change because so many of the symbols, so much of the language of it and the, and the essence of it, you know, points to this connection between us, black folks in the U.S., with the African continent. Um, that, that, that ancestral connection, so much of it is, is, uh, is, is drawn, our attention is drawn to it. And when I see the way it would sort of reverse the psychology of, of the anti-African society, that, uh, psychology that is so ingrained, that is so ingrained, especially of my generation coming up in the 60s, we, 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 were, we were so ingrained, Tarzan and Jane and, and King of the Jungle and, and Ooga Booga, black people talking Ooga Booga and all these negative kinds of stereotypes is all you had coming up about Africa. Very, very seldom anything positive about Africa. And when I began to see that in the early 80s, challenging, I said, well, maybe there is something to this. And so we see it spread on from there. Um, I think it was mostly in many of your big cities with large African-American populations first. As I said, the New Yorks, the Philadelphias, the Chicagos, the Detroits, the, uh, all of these big cities sort of first. But eventually we, it, it has moved out uh, into smaller communities. I was part of bringing it to Alabama when we moved and worked in, in Alabama in the, uh, in the 90s, late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and we, we promoted the celebration of it there, and, and, and now it continues on. Um, you know, so we, um, it, it has spread now to throughout the, the United States into smaller uh, communities. But again, you have to remember, most African Americans, by and large, are in big metropolitan areas. So uh, the fact that it's in, in Atlanta, that it's in uh, Birmingham and Jackson, uh, in uh, New Orleans, you're, you're cap capturing so, so much of the population right there. But yes, it's throughout the U.S. and even uh, throughout the world, Af worldwide African community now. Professor Amakar Shabazz, Shabazz, this is Buzz, uh, and I'm not even sure how to uh, uh, phrase this question except um, from my own experience. My very closest friend from the time I was three and a half years old was Jim Sperling, a Christian. I was raised in a Jewish household, mm -hmm. and, and we were an immigrant family. I mean, we were of immigrants, and there was a lot of sort of... Um, uh, sort of uh, Jews with Jews and then Christians with Christians where, where I grew up. Um, but Jimmy and I were best of friends, so every Christmas I would go over, sleep over his house on Christmas Eve, and there was a present for me, and I would enjoy that. And he would come over to our house for Hanukkah and sleep over and enjoy that. And we just had this sort of blending. Um, in my family, there was always a tension between assimilation, which I aspired to, and... Um, celebrating our Jewishness with my parents, both religiously and culturally. 
aspire to. I'm wondering about Kwanzaa, and um, again, I'm biting my tongue as I ask the question, but it's not like non-African Americans are invited into the Kwanzaa sphere to celebrate Kwanzaa, or are they? Is it something that's going to make uh, assimilation less likely as a result of celebration of Kwanzaa? Good, good. So, you know, in, in my, I think in our generation, assimilation has always been a, um, a very important concept and, and also one very, very fraught. Um, I was raised in the 60s with a strong uh, mindset toward, toward assimilating, um, and it was really more in the going into the early 80s. Um, uh, that, that I sort of broke free from that. Uh, I can even point to the day when I started my, 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 uh, my not um, combing out the tangles in my hair, which allows it to then form into dreadlocks. It was the day in 1981, the day in which it was announced that Bob Marley had passed, uh, gone on to the ancestors. I just threw the comb away. And that was, that was you know, uh, a symbolic moment for me in just completely breaking with the assimilationist mindset because you know in that mindset i should either be putting a permanent in my hair and make trying to make it as straight as i could or at least keeping it short and combed out and so-called neatly groomed and uh, and i just broke free in 81 uh, and it wasn't due to kwanzaa <laughs> i was just barely getting into kwanzaa but uh but to but to get to the point Yes, there is an aspect of Kwanzaa that is anti-assimilationist, an aspect of it that more, more particularly in, say, the modern language, is, is, is part of a decolonization process, a kind of freeing of the mind from, the, from, the, from that homogenized, you know, white milk, uh, uh, homogenized milk kind of mindset that we all have to be a certain way, talk a certain way, walk a certain way, you know, look a certain way. Um, particularly following the example of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, Christians, uh, Protestant people. No, we don't. We don't. The, the, the world is big enough that we can have we can have greater diversity than that, greater cultural uh, and, and, and uh, expressive uh, uh, diversity than that. And, and there is an element that that promotes that. But I want to come back to one other aspect and uh, the place of non uh, African, non-African Americans in, in the Kwanzaa uh, events and Kwanzaa ceremonies. It, it's absolutely open. It's absolutely, you know, but the, but the point is in opening, it is not that it changes. It's not that its essence is no longer the same way as I'm sure when you go to your, 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 your friend's house in, in, uh, in Hanukkah, for Hanukkah uh, would have them over. You don't dilute it or water it down or take out all of the elements of, of what you're doing there uh, because you've got a, a, uh, a Gentile uh, friend in the house and vice versa. When you go there, they're not going to say, oh, well, we're, we're not going to give presents because Buzz is here. And, you know, that, that would insult Buzz. No, you know, they, they had a present under the tree for you. So it's the same way with Kwanzaa. We don't water it down and, and change it up and take the focus off that connecting to Africa because we have non-Africans present in it. You know, Bay McNeil is over teaching Japanese in, a, in their very insular, monocultural, you know, kind of uh, uh, setting. Uh, he's he's showing them a whole a whole different different kind of way of being, and he doesn't you know water it down to to make sense to to them. He he instead 
draws them in to understand why these practices are such, why these principles are such, and why people are doing this around the world. UMass Professor of History and African American Studies, Amilcar Shabazz, will have more with the professor right after this. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. The cost of electricity might not break the bank this winter. At a public hearing earlier this month, representatives from National Grid, Eversource, and Berkshire Gas said that winter rates should be anywhere between 14 to 28 percent lower this year than last year. A slowdown of the war between Ukraine and Russia has led to a relative stabilization of liquid natural gas prices, and a new billing mechanism that requires utility companies to split billing cycles between December and January has led to somewhat lower energy costs in the Northeast. Earlier this month at a hearing on utility prices, Senator Paul Mark said that energy costs have risen sharply in recent years, with electricity rates rising by about 15%. The ongoing debate over whether to reopen Rattlesnake Gutter Road in Leverett or discontinue it and make it into a public access hiking trail continued last week. The Leverett Town Administrator, Select Board Chair, and other concerned citizens took part in a walk along the Cliffside Road with a Massachusetts Department of Transportation Administrator who said the road wasn't in terrible shape, but the potential for washouts during heavy rainstorms should be addressed. Members of the nonprofit conservation group, the Rattlesnake Gutter Trust, would like to see the precarious road, which had been closed to traffic for over 20 years now, officially discontinued and turned into a hiking trail. However, the town's fire chief, police chief, and emergency response director have all expressed interest in keeping the road open in case of emergency situations in the northern part of town. If the road were to be officially discontinued, the town would have to hold a public hearing first, which is yet to be scheduled. Inflation has pushed consumer costs 19% higher this year than prior to the pandemic, according to the National Retail Federation. Survey data shows that more than half of Americans believe they are worse off financially than they were just one year ago, according to 22 News. Rush doctors, short appointments. Is anyone listening? I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson, and I'm excited to announce that Atkinson Family Practice is now offering concierge medicine in addition to our main practice. An annual fee gets you access to an experienced, board-certified doctor who has fewer patients so they can devote more time to you. Atkinson Concierge Medicine. If your health concerns need more time, coordination, and advocacy, concierge might be right for you. Visit atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. I'm Tony Warden, President and CEO of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'm excited to announce our partnership with Community Action and our sponsorship of their VITA program. VITA stands for Volunteer Income Tax Assistance, and we need your help. Thanks to the support from Greenfield Cooperative Bank, we're expanding our reach to help more people than ever file taxes for free. Our IRS-certified volunteers will prepare taxes for low-income households at clinics in Greenfield, Northampton, Orange, and for the first time ever, where? Make it your New Year's resolution to support your neighbors and learn a new skill. Training provided. No prior experience necessary. Let us know you're interested by January 1st. Visit communityaction.us slash taxes 
to join our team of amazing volunteers. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with University of Massachusetts Professor Amilcar Shabazz. We are talking about Kwanzaa. Uh, he is a professor of history, a professor of African-American studies as well, and has been a leading light of the Afro-Am department at UMass Amherst for many, many years. Uh, professor, you were telling us about and teaching us, frankly, about Kwanzaa, and you mentioned at the beginning the seven principles of Kwanzaa, one principle of which is celebrated each day of the seven days of Kwanzaa. Uh, two questions in that regard. I'd like to have you tell us about the seven principles, and I would like to have you tell us about how Kwanzaa is celebrated. So let's start with the seven principles. Very good. So we each day there's just a brief kind of opening ceremony, and then you kind of go from there as you wish. And in the opening ceremony, there's a lighting of the candle. The seven, there are seven candles on a, um, uh, a structure called the Canara, a candle holder called the Canara. And you will light the candle that pertains to the principle of that day until you light all seven on January 1st, the last day. Uh, so the seven principles begin on the first day with a black candle in the middle of this seven, these seven candles. And um, the principle is umoja from the Kiswahili language. Umoja, moja is, means one, the number one. And then umoja is like oneness or unity. And so we celebrate unity, which the motto of it is to strive for and maintain unity in the family, community, nation and and race and so again this this is the the principle there the next day we go on and it's the same thing we have a little opening ceremony we'll light the candle um and the principle of the day and the second day is kujichagulia kujichagulia kiswahili for self-determination to define ourselves name ourselves create for ourselves and speak for ourselves Going back to that, that assimilationist question, you know, this is where many of us uh, would be inspired to adopt African uh, names. For me, um, I wasn't born in Milkar Shabazz, but in the um, <clears throat> late 70s, early 80s, I took on the name Amilcar and Shabazz, Amilcar inspired by Amilcar Cabral in Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, uh, leader of the independent struggle there, and Shabazz for El-Hajj Malik Shabazz Malcolm X, two very influential people for me. So I, I defined myself, I named myself, and created and spoke for myself in, and, and, and represented Kuji Chagulia in that name changing. Uh, and a lot of people, this is a big part of it. Malcolm becomes Malik. Uh, uh, Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali. 
um, you know, uh, um, Joanne Chesimard became a Sada Shakur. So it's a it's a major tradition of this, particularly again coming out of the Cultural Revolution of the '60s to re, to name ourselves. Um, third day is Ujima, collective work and responsibility um, to build and maintain our community together and make our brothers and sisters' problems our problems and to solve them together. That's kind of the theme of Ujima. The next day, Ujamaa, Ujamaa, or cooperative economics, to build and maintain our own stores, shops, and other businesses, and to profit from them together. Now, there's no idea that that, that alone can generate the, the, in, the wealth and that alone can, can solve our economic problems, but it's, it's, it's not a bad start, or it's not a, it's not a step in the process to, to learn how to handle money, how to make our dollar work more for us, how to, how to spend and, and consume in ways that, that build us up and, uh, and allow us to, to, to uh, profit together, as it were. Fifth day is NIA, N-I-A, NIA, uh, which means purpose, to make our collective vocation the building and developing of our community in order to restore our people to their traditional greatness. You know, again, reversing that psychology from, from before our cultural revolution, the view was, for many of us, our history started in slavery. We don't know where we were before the Middle Passage, so that's all just a, a big unknown, a big X, and our history really begins coming over here and becoming slaves. And then out of this, the, then Lincoln set us free uh, and, and so that we were no longer slaves. And then we started becoming, you know, uh, um, little, little people in the society, little peasants. But then uh, Martin Luther King and, and, and Rosa Parks sat down and Dr. King marched. And then we finally became full American citizens. No, that's a, that's a totally uh, bogus way. And we have to look beyond the Middle Passage, look to, to the African continent. And it's long and deep and, and, and actually a history that is the history of the entire human family, the origins of the entire human family out of that continent. So then we begin to, to find a purpose that is deeper than just what, 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 is, uh, uh, what we think of from the context of a slave. And then the sixth night is, sixth day is kuumba or creativity to do always as much as we can in the way we can in order to leave our community more beautiful and beneficial than we inherited. I like to say this creativity principle, it really embodies the idea of sustainability, making our communities more sustainable and resilient, because it's about how do we, you know, uh, um, create and, and uh, the kinds of ideas and practices and lifestyles that make it possible for us to, 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 make, to make our world uh, um, you know, better, stronger, more beautiful than we found it. It's like Dan saying, you know, if we keep on uh, living the same way we, we live now, not mindful of the climate issues, not mindful of, of the carbon footprints and all of that, things will only get, get worse. We've got to, at some point, it's not just a technological fix of, of nuclear or solar or anything. It's also about, you know, weatherizing our homes it's also about how you know turning off the light switch when we're not using them. i mean all those kinds of little things and and the plastic bags i mean it, it's all part of a piece so being creative about that and and, and 
fight, creating new ways of being in the world. That, that's, that's a part of Kuumba. And then the final principle on January 1 is Imani, or faith, to believe with all our heart in our people, our parents, our teachers, our leaders, and the righteousness and victory of our struggle. And this is also, um, you know, a very strong and fitting way to kind of end the seven days that then points on to the rest of the year and that to, to carry these, the, you know, these principles forward and continuing to, to uh, uh, you know, really pledge ourselves to the, to the, to the victory of our struggle. We are speaking with Professor Milkar Shabazz from the African American Studies Department at UMass Amherst, a professor of history. When we come back, I want to ask the professor more about something he just shared with us, which his change of name, which I didn't know. And I'd like to go back and ask him to reflect on all those individuals who did change their name. And in particular, I want to ask about Cassius Clay, who said, I am giving up my slave name. I am no longer Cassius Clay. I am Muhammad Ali. And I want to talk about that, which we'll do right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op kitchen is always cooking. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Order sandwich platters or anything platters for lunchtime, party time, or any time. You like to bake? The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven, bread and brownies, cakes and cookies. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. You love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation about Kwanzaa and other topics with UMass Professor of History and African American Studies, Amilcar Shabazz. You told us just a few moments ago, Professor, about 
your decision to change your name. And you reflected on many other African-Americans who had changed their names as well. And you had referenced Cassius Clay uh, throwing off his, as he would yeah. have phrased it, the yoke of his slave name of Cassius Clay. Uh, there was a uh, political aspect of that. There was a, a religious aspect of that for Ali. And I'm wondering whether you could share your reflections on that aspect of changing your name. Yes, thanks. It, it was a it was a big decision. It was a big move because, um, you know, I, I grew up um, kind of slowly coming to admire um, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. And a lot of a lot of that slowness was due to the fact that he was it, it seemed so so different, so rebellious. He was with Malcolm. He was he was a Muslim. Uh, he was you know he had changed his name. He had resisted the draft and and and, and re- you know and took punishment, lost his title, his belt, and everything uh, because of refusing to to go over to fight in Vietnam. I mean, we from my little standpoint there in Beaumont, he was he was pretty radical looking, and uh, and certainly my parents and 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 uh, uh, grandparents' generation, he was he was uh, you know too you know, very suspicious of, of of him, but but man, his style and his and his performance in the ring and, and just everything about him as a, as a human being was so, you know, uh, um, energizing and, and, and generative of a sense of, wow, we're, we're better than they say. We're better than what the system says that, you know, eventually you, you, you just had to kind of, you had to kind of embrace him. But, uh, but for me, then the, the name change comes against that, against that background and it's it's for me as a as a, a a reader, a bookish kind of person. Uh, it came from just reading and learning about these these individuals, Malcolm and, X uh, and and uh, and Muhammad Ali. I identified a lot with Malcolm uh, or, or Malik El Shabazz around the you know the way he came up in a in, with so many uh, negative things around him, telling him he was. He was nothing. Tell him he was no good. Taking his father's life, uh, his mother going into the insane asylum. I never had all of these things uh, like that. But but the general point of his being so um, alone in the world and, and, and a world so hostile to his to his very existence, and yet he he, he forged away, you know, yet he was very resilient. Yet he pointed to things which, again, for him in his own case, books. When he's in prison here in, in, in Massachusetts, Walpole or wherever, uh, that had this great uh, book library, he, uh, he immersed himself and, 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 and turned, you know, began to educate his mind. So that was so uh, generative. And then uh, Amilcar Cabral, is, his works in the late 70s, uh, mid-70s were translated into English, came out in, uh, through monthly review press. A friend of mine had a copy of Return to the Source, and then I just read that and started trying to find anything else by him in English that I could read, because his his messages and the way he delivered his messages were just so empowering that it's not, going back to the assimilation, it's not that we are trying to find something different than what we're raised around, it's that we're trying to go to a to the a, real source of our 
of our life, of our imagination, of our, you know, for me to go to Betsy Ross and to go to George Washington, a slaveholder, for, for my, you know, to, to generate my sense of, of, of my identity, it just doesn't work, you know? And, and, and I'm, I have a U.S. passport. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as much a part of the United States as anybody else born here or moves here or whatever. But it just doesn't work for me to find my hero, my mythic, you know, uh, expression of, 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 of what I want to be as a human being in, in, a, uh, in a George Washington. Okay? So I, had to, I have to go somewhere else. And for me, it was Malcolm, it was, it was uh, Amilcar Cabral, it was, you know, looking at people who, who identified um, how freedom is really, uh, you, you want to build your culture around the real freedom, <laughs> freedom of everybody, not just for some, not just for the founding fathers or the, the, the property owners in, in North America, but, but a deeper sense of freedom. And so Professor. It, it, it's tied up in some of that. We're going to have to leave it there. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so very, very much. Do we say happy Kwanzaa? Happy Kwanzaa, and I'm off to Medway. Uh, they're celebrating Kwanzaa in Medway, the third annual. They invited us to, to come down and participate with them. Thank well, you. Happy and, uh, Kwanzaa then, to them as well. Thank you, Professor. Really appreciate Thank it. I worked on jobs. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, Exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP. According to the National Retail Federation, survey data shows that more than half of Americans believe they are worse off financially than they were just one year ago, according to 22 News. Welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And happy holidays to everybody. Uh, we just uh, uh, completed Christmas. We completed uh, Hanukkah. Today's the first day of Kwanzaa. We've got New Year's right in front of us. And uh, the real treat for me is that we have Duke Goldman in the studio. We can talk about, well, this intersection between 
finances and sports is one that uh, Duke knows, well, maybe too much about. Duke, talk to us. Well, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, the last time we did Fair Play, we were talking about income inequality from the perspective of uh, sports competition on the franchise level, the idea that some franchises have more money than others and then ha- that, how that affects competition. But, but um, Buzz, I think you in particular were, were keyed into the more individual level. And we can look at that in any number of different ways. But the way that strikes me most goes back to just a little story from about 20 years ago for my life. I went to a Mets game, was bringing a bunch of people to the game. I was the person showing up with the tickets. I got to Shea Stadium, the former Mets place, a place I fondly remember as a dump. Um, and uh, because it was because it was and uh, some met fans i know are like oh but we loved it it was shay it's like shay was a dump come on it was our dump but it was a dump you know but anyway i got there and boy i'd forgotten to bring my tickets what am i going to do well i rent up to the box office the mets weren't selling out in those days they kind of stunk at the time and i was able to get tickets in the top row of the bleachers but for six dollars a piece And you can't get tickets at that price almost anywhere these days, not even in a minor league stadium Well, Bill pointed out you can't get a hot dog at that price in a ballpark. Right. And what does that mean? It means when we're looking at fans, and, you know, I'm not going to say all we see are, you know, a sea of white faces, not necessarily. You know, I I actually watched some football yesterday. I was at my relative's house, and they had football on because they watch football, and we we had the volume off. I found I liked it better with the volume off for some reason. I don't know. And I saw there were black faces in the crowd. There were... There was some diversity in the crowd, but you know what? Those people have money because you can't afford to go to a sporting event without money these days. You really can't. And to me, that's troubling. I mean, sports was is supposed to be a great leveler. And I know, you know, years and years ago, young kids in the 40s and 50s could go to games on their own. And if they had a quarter in their pocket, pretty much, they could get into a game. Not anymore doesn't exist. Does it, Dan, what's behind all of that? I mean, is it just the contracts? I mean, I, I think, you know, the revenue money is coming from TV and the internet. Why are prices so high for tickets? Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's greed. I mean, it's ownership and big business and, you know, high finance and everybody wanting to get their cut. And sports is a multi-billion dollar business these days. And most of the franchises are owned by billionaires. You know, back in the day, sports owners, I'm not saying they were great people. I'm not saying they didn't want to make money. But generally speaking, quite a few of them, that was their gig. And they operated on a, a smaller level, if you will. And so there, and there wasn't all these media options. And yes, the players didn't make as much either. I'm, I'm happy today that players get a fairer share of the cut than they used to get. But does everybody need to make billions and millions of dollars? And who does it shut out? It shuts out the fans. And baseball, my love in particular, when we don't see African-American faces on the field, it has a lot to do with income inequality because, and and I've looked at this and I've read all sorts of stuff about why we don't see African-Americans in baseball these days. And what it comes down to largely is 
baseball is no longer played at the school level at, at young ages to any great degree. It's played by travel teams and people need money in order to be able to afford to bring their kids at, uh, through the baseball process. And African-Americans still generally in our country are still fighting the income battle. They don't have the income. And also Major League Baseball decided in the 60s and 70s in particular and going forward that there was a cheap source of players in the Caribbean countries and they decided we're going to exploit that and we're not going to pursue um, black athletes in, in America to the same degree we used to. is it cheaper, uh, Duke Goldman, to exploit black uh, athletes right here in America than it is to look to the Dominican Republic for, no. for talent? No, it's not. Why? <laughs> Because in the Dominican Republic, you've got you've got abject poverty, um, and you can develop because it's not America. You can develop a system of academies. There's been some um, some regulation of that more now, but they're they're almost like boot camps where you get a whole bunch of young kids who are real hungry to get off the island, and you get a very cheap source of of players and although there's again there's been more regulation but to a large degree you can sign those players um, for less money than what is required to but sign me, players I, because those players are not drafted in america they're in a draft system because i'm always curious about this um there are very hungry african-american kids who want to get out of their island so to speak and they go into football where they don't have you know, we talk about there aren't baseball diamonds, there aren't baseball fields. Well, they learn to play football, they learn to play basketball, they and they see those as a ticket out, and uh, they are exploited. I think the NFL is seventy-two percent African American. I think uh, even a higher percentage for for the NBA. So, what's the difference? Well, the difference is football. You don't have to play travel teams. Football is played at every level in 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 junior high school and high school and Kids, um, kids in the inner city see an opportunity there, and it leads to what Bill was talking about earlier. We see a, a, a disproportionate percentage of the athletes playing football who are on the field getting smashed and destroyed um, for the benefit of the largely white audience, and those athletes are largely African-American. Duke Goldman, what do you make of the signing of Japanese baseball players in the major league for well, recent, most recently, $300, $350 million for one contract. How, how does that fit into this story? Well, it's a, again, it's about branding. It's about internationalizing the sport. It's about more money to be made by spreading it worldwide. Baseball wants to be an international game, and they see opportunities by signing these 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 top-level stars and presenting them. Shohei Otani is the first baseball athlete in years who really is up there with other top superstar athletes in other sports. Baseball has not had athletes like that. So they're going to they're going to present him and and make money off of him. And he's going to make his money too, you know, but He's, he's a tremendous opportunity to the Dodgers to grow their franchise value and to uh, recoup more money through, through you know, uh, merch. Like, you know, they're going to they're gonna sell Otani stuff like mad now that he's with the Dodgers. What about in income inequality among players? That is, one player gets, a, albeit deferred, gets a, a stated $700 million contract while others are getting the minimum of, what, $400,000 a year. 
Yeah, and it, it's gone up. I mean, the minimums are better than they used to be. Um, you know, one thing that's important to realize is there's a big difference between average salary and median salary. So you've got players making $30 million a year. Sometimes, again, I'm mostly as familiar from this standpoint with baseball, and you'll have teams that have average salaries much higher than the median. Sometimes they'll have half or more of their players making major league minimum salaries, and then a few athletes who are making upwards of $20, $30, $40 million a year. And a lot of those athletes making the minimum don't have a long career at all. And so I'm not saying they're poor. They're, they're getting a decent amount of money, but not for very long. And we should point out, and I think we should pause here to note, that in fact, the average baseball career is very short. So is the average NFL career. Right. We hear about these superstars and their careers that go on for 10 or 12 or 14 years. Great. But that's not reality for most professional athletes. Correct. And these athletes are the best in their professions. And I'm always intrigued by how much it feels to me like people don't seem to resent CEOs and, and top executives who make multi-billion dollars. They don't even really seem to resent, you know, music superstars or movie superstars, but somehow athletes are different. And I think that connects with people all grew up playing sports and they feel like, look at those people. They're doing that fun thing that I did. And I secretly or not so secretly, I wish I could do too. And then they're getting paid unbelievable money to play a game that's just you know, slam bang fun. It's a kid's game. Yeah, it's a kid's game. So, boy, aren't they lucky. They should be, they should play for nothing. You know, it's every time I hear a player say, I love it so much, I play for nothing, I think, I wish they wouldn't say that. They're professionals. They're doing a job. They're doing a hard job. Sure, they enjoy it, but so does a musician. So does a movie star. They love what they're doing, too. And I, I guess, I mean, I have a lot more trouble relating to why CEOs love what they do. I spent time in corporate America, and I wouldn't want to do that anymore. I, I don't get it. But they're, they love making money, you know? They love the world of high finance. They're, they're happy what they're doing. Why don't people resent them? They don't seem to. I don't know why people don't resent. Actually, I do think I people do resent, do resent them in, in some yeah. ways. But in fact, I think you're making a really important point, which is uh, at, in the big picture, people accept that. Of course, corporate executives should make 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars per year. Of course, they should have stock options that give you a couple hundred million dollars. And when they fail, they should be given, you know, uh, packages, retirement packages of. 30, 40, 50 million dollars, because failure should be rewarded in corporate America. I mean, it's really backwards. Somehow they're productive. You know, they're, they're producing for society. They're employing people. They're benefactors, and they're working hard and making our capitalist society run smoothly. So let's give them everything. Well, Bill, that, that might explain the inexplicable, which is why do people accept Trump? And, you know, I'm always like, why don't you resent this man for being born into that level of money and then exploiting it in the way that he did? I, uh, to me, it's mystifying. Oh, goodness. Everything comes back to Donald Trump. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Everything. Fair play here. That's what he loves. He <laughs> loves that. that. That troubles me to no end that, that Donald Trump sits there and no matter what we say about him, he's just enthused that we all go back to him. Can't we just put him in a dustbin somewhere? Well... That's going to be. The answer <laughs> is no, actually, because he's running to be president and likely to capture at least uh, the nomination for the Republican Party. 
And if we're talking income inequality, it's a great place to end the conversation for a moment. But we are talking fair play with Duke Goldman. We're going to be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. With you choose debit card rewards from Greenfield Savings Bank, holiday shopping is even more rewarding. That's because every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard with you choose rewards for purchases, in person or online, you earn points that can be redeemed for cash back, dining, shopping, traveling, donations, and more. You can even link your GSB Debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or PayPal. You Choose Rewards is a free benefit that comes with our free checking accounts. It's easy to start earning You Choose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up for You Choose Rewards. So start receiving every time you give this holiday season with You Choose Rewards from Greenfield Savings Bank. You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB debit card. Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com slash you choose. Greenfield Savings Bank, member FDIC, member DIF. Did you know that veterans make up about one-third of America's adult homeless population? Only 3.9 cents of each income tax dollar last year went to veterans' benefits. Ever wonder about where your tax money goes? More information on how your tax money is being spent can be found at nationalpriorities.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with uh, Sabre Scholar, Society for American Baseball Research researcher, Duke Goldman, who's actually teaching right now, of course, about baseball. And we're talking about income inequality and... and teaching Duke, at UMass. Yes. At UMass, of course. Um, but we're talking about income in inequality and... Uh, uh, you've been you've been talking about this for some time, Duke. Well, you know, I think it's you know when I when I read you know political historians, when I look at the landscape of of our world today, I think so many things come down to that, you know, and and sports has it too, you know, I, this this myth that sports is this oasis where every, the field is level and you know everybody the best person wins and. No, sports is like everything else. It's, it's, you know, people who have their heavy hand on the scales who have more than others. It's teams who have more than others. Look, I'm a Mets fan, and a part of my brain is saying, yeah, Steve Cohen, the billionaire hedge fund owner, he's got so much money. Go out there and spend all of it so the Mets can compete. And the other part of me says, really, is, you know, is that the way it should be? You know, are the Mets becoming an evil empire like the dreaded Yankees? You know? Uh <laughs> what do you mean... Becoming. <laughs> well, if I may add that the issue is you're not winning, that that's the big issue. The Yankees do spend the big bucks, but they have the trophies to back it up. 
Ah, uh, yes, that's true. Uh, not recently, though. I mean, the Red Sox are beating the Yankees four to one in World Series triumphs in the new millennium. So, oh, that's what the Red Sox fans will think about this year. Yes, we 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 have four of them after a century of being denied. I don't know, Bill. I hear this from so many uh, Red Sox fans that are like, you know, I'm okay. We won four times. You know, it's I, we can I, go back and lose them for the next century. Uh, not the next century, but you know, I mean, there's something about winning all the time that begets this expectation, like. Boo-hoo, we haven't won in, you know, like like three months. How come we're not winning, you know? You're not winning because you're last three out of the last four years, Red of Sox. Of course oh, Red the conversation Sox, goes back to the Yankees. Yankees, Red Sox. But I, I want to return to what sure. we were really talking about because this is my personal experience. Um, we were talking with Professor Amilcar uh, Shabazz about uh, Kwanzaa on this first day of Kwanzaa for this year. And we were talking about uh, how he changed his name and how he sought his own identity and wanted to embrace the history of African Americans in this country. Well, I've seen it. You've seen it, Duke. Uh, you have as well, Bill and Dan. You, you, we all like to play when we're kids, and we learn the rules of these games, and we learn to play these games. And some people are just better at it than other people, and they get celebrated, and they get a little bit, you know, uh, put up on a pedestal because they, their prowess is better and they are looking for their identity like every kid is looking for their identity. And what they say is, hey, it would be really fun to do this for a living. And suddenly they are, that celebration becomes an adulation and uh, they get it in their mind that instead of some owner getting money, they should be getting uh, these riches that attend the game, and we see it sprout in income inequality based on perceived talent. What's the solution at the professional level, Duke Goldman, to th that level of income inequality we see for those people who were all raised as being celebrated and then become adulated? Damned if I know. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how you deal with this effectively. I, I don't really have any answers to that. I mean, I think, you know, I can come up with little things like I think there should be salary floors in baseball, you know, going back to my main sport. Um, I think teams should be required to spend a certain amount of money such that they can't just go out there and pay bottom dollar for the lowest athletes. But how, how does that translate to the average? Should there be ceilings? Bill Newman, should there be salary ceilings? No, because it will depress salaries all the way up and down the line. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in agreement with that. I think we need floors, but not ceilings. Um, well, then we're guaranteed to have incoming equality because somebody is a, a bigger draw than somebody else. Well, there's going to be some amount of income inequality. I don't think we live in a country. Our ethos as a country is not one where we're not socialists. You know, much as I remember friends of mine used to say to me, Barack Obama is a socialist. And I would say, believe me, I'm a socialist. He's not a socialist. No way. We're not, this is not a socialist country, right? No, but ever the Pollyanna, I think w when, when we have a local bookstore that's collectively owned by the workers, or, or when we see a, a, a restaurant moving in the direction of worker-owned, worker-controlled, or a factory, uh, we applaud. I know I, as a progressive, I get excited to hear about that. I don't, I don't know why we shouldn't have... Uh, athlete-owned cooperative clubs that where they, there's a lot of money to be made. They would be very affluent, but nobody would be making $700 bill, million. 
Well, so then the question becomes, can we go to that level of social engineering in this society? And, and is it, would it be good in theory? I don't know. Maybe it would be good, but it's never going to happen. Well, except you did mention on the show not too long ago, Duke Goldman, that in Green Bay, the community actually owns the Green Bay Packers, the football team, at least. In, and, and I think there's some reality to that. And it builds community. It does a lot of things. Yes, but it's 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 the exception that proves the rule. It's this one tiny little community that has a team, and it's a historic artifact of a league that was not a major league at the time that the team owned it. And people own shares, and it doesn't really mean much of anything. I mean, it's not really the idea of the community owns it, only in on paper. Oh, watch my balloon go. <laughs> okay, but still, it, it's, it is an indication of community support for, well, the Packers are different. I think that that's actually, I like your statement, it's the exception that proves, proves the rule. Because I think there is a sense of community, at least there was years ago, of community ownership and participation in the Green Bay Packers being our team. It, 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 well, football is the, the most socialist of all the sports, by the way, as we discussed last time. Um, and a team. Uh, yeah, a team that they share. Preparing. Well, and that they share their revenues more equally. But you're right. I think, I think that that becomes a certain kind of reality. The community is invested in the team, literally and figuratively. But to be able to replicate that, I don't see it happening in, in our society. And so then what are we left with? Well, I'd like to see more attention and more effort brought to, you know, putting pressure on owners of sports franchises to create lower levels of ticket prices. I think that would be very important. There is an effort being made in baseball to try to increase African-American athletes. And I think some of those steps are positive, and I hope they're going to bear fruit. And recent drafts have shown they've been drafting more African-American athletes. There is an effort on the way to try to elevate African-Americans to key positions of responsibility, coaching, general managers, etc. I think that's important. We've talked about women athletes. I want to see women's sports promoted. I think that's another way of creating inequality because we have this devastating inequality in our society up till now that women have been given short shrift in sports and women are great and there are so many great women athletes. So I think a lot of it comes out into the public sphere and that's where it has to be played out. The more people become invested in the idea that sports should be for everyone. Well, one more question before we, unfortunately, run out of time because I could talk about this all week. But I remember, uh, I'm dating myself, in the mid-70s, Marvin Miller was creating the Players Association, the modern notion of a Players Association in baseball. And he said the very most important thing for us to bargain for is disclosure of profitability by the owners so that we know how big the pie is so we can figure out how much of it we should demand um, or aspire to. Uh, what's the status of that? Do do in, in these major sports leagues? Do is there disclosure of profitability? I think there's more than by far than there used to be. They used to keep all of that under wraps. There's more legal and and other media methods of putting pressure on 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 sports to expose their operating costs and expenses. So there's also, of course, always you know legalized methods of you know, um, getting depreciation and, you know, reducing your costs in certain ways and exploiting the market. So 
you know. And we know what the teams are worth because they sell occasionally for yes. billions of dollars. Right. So no one's paying billions unless they're having some return on it. And I think that's reality. And right. we have to deal with reality here. But that doesn't mean we have to accept it readily or support it or agree with it. And I think the NFL's television contracts total $11.5 billion this, in 2023. For a sport that's basically um, putting its athletes into uh, sitting in, in, in high chairs and eating you know, baby food because they're, they're losing their minds when they're older. Well, that's an uplifting <laughs> thought. <laughs> and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> Watch more football. Duke Goldman, it is always a pleasure. It's, it's always just so uh, edifying to speak with you and I thank you. Um, you know, you've been with us twice a month during 2023 and we're looking forward to 2024. You really do um, illuminate and brighten our time on the show. Thank you, Duke. Thank you and Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you very much. We are going to be right back. We're going to turn our attention to Amherst, the library and borrowing right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. The cost of electricity might not break the bank this winter. At a public hearing earlier this month, representatives from National Grid, Eversource, and Berkshire Gas said that winter rates should be anywhere between 14 to 28 percent lower this year than last year. A slowdown of the war between Ukraine and Russia has led to a relative stabilization of liquid natural gas prices. And a new billing mechanism that requires utility companies to split billing cycles between December and January has led to somewhat lower energy costs in the Northeast. Earlier this month, at a hearing on utility prices, Senator Paul Mark said that energy costs have risen sharply in recent years, with electricity rates rising by about 15 percent. The ongoing debate over whether to reopen Rattlesnake Gutter Road in Leverett or discontinue it and make it into a public access hiking trail continued last week. The Leverett Town Administrator, Select Board Chair, and other concerned citizens took part in a walk along the Cliffside Road with a Massachusetts Department of Transportation Administrator who said the road wasn't in terrible shape, but the potential for washouts during heavy rainstorms should be addressed. Members of the nonprofit conservation group, the Rattlesnake Gutter Trust, would like to see the precarious road, which had been closed to traffic for over 20 years now, officially discontinued and turned into a hiking trail. However, the town's fire chief, police chief, and emergency response director have all expressed interest in keeping the road open in case of emergency situations in the northern part of town. If the road were to be officially discontinued, the town would have to hold a public hearing first, which is yet to be scheduled. Inflation has pushed consumer costs 19% higher this year than prior to the pandemic, according to the National Retail Federation. Survey data shows that more than half of Americans believe they are worse off financially than they were just one year ago, according to 22 News. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. 
I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit HitchcockCenter.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Uh, Amherst has been really busy. There was an article in the Daler Hampshire Gazette last week. Um, I was uh, sad. I'm embarrassed to admit that I was unaware that the Amherst Town Council was um, being asked to increase borrowing for the Jones Library project by $10 million, and that uh, the headline says that some on the council called it the, quote, most trying, end quote, vote that they've had on the council. With us to discuss this today is town council president, Lynn Griesmer, and uh, the chair of the Jones trustees, the board of trustees, Austin Sarah. Thank you both for joining us. I guess I want to start with... Um, you, Lynn, um, there was uh, this difficult decision. Could you, can you tell us, you know what, I am not going to start there. I want to start with the library renovation project. A couple years ago, a decision was made to do it. So why don't you bring us in from there, and then we'll get to the vote last week. So uh, several years ago, back when we still had town meeting, uh, the library began the process with the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners to apply for a grant to do a renovation and addition to our present Jones Library. And they were accepted initially, and then over time they were accepted for the full project, and off and we're off and running. That means that the state is providing us with a significant grant it means that the town has to provide some money as well, in our case, about $15.8 million. And the library trustees have to raise the rest of the money. So we are now at the stage where we're getting ready to go out to bid. And once we and to go out to bid, you have to make sure the borrowing is there. So that's where we are. So the overall project is at about $46 million, um, and that you're saying that Amherst actually uh, is is looking for, well, roughly half of that is going to be coming from the town. Um, Austin Sarrett, 
you have a, I have to go back to the situation in Amherst. We keep hearing about the schools are in really tough shape, despite the fact that the plebiscites uh, resulted in a new school to replace the two elementary schools. Um, there is a funding shortfall that threatens layoffs at the school level. We're talking about famously potholes on the highways. What is it about the library that warrants another borrowing of $10 million, a total expense of $46 million to renovate the beloved Jones Library? Well, first of all, you have to step back. The, the, the idea of renovating and expanding the library project is not a, what I would call a want-to project. It's a need project. Uh, we've been thinking about what we need to do in this library for more than a decade. The library has extreme deferred maintenance needs, uh, roughly estimated now around $20 million of deferred maintenance needs. That's the, that's the first thing. Second thing, the town of Amherst hasn't built a public building since it built the police station decades ago. There are infrastructure needs all over the town. That's something we all face. The next thing is uh, the library, in my view, in addition to the public schools, uh, is the most democratic facility in the town. It brings people together, rich and poor, old and young, people that speak English, people are learning English for the first time, like no other institution in the town. A vibrant library, uh, a library fit for the 21st century is necessary for a vibrant town of Amherst. I'm a, I, I live in the town, I, I, I ride on the roads, I use the public facilities, I know what the in infrastructure needs are in the town. So it, it's not, this wasn't a frivolous, oh, we just want to build a bigger library. We did a very careful study of what the library needs. That study was validated, approved, scrutinized at the state level and supported. So this is an essential project in my, um, in my view. The last thing I want to say is, I am first and foremost a citizen of Amherst. So when I think about the library, I don't just think, well, what is good for the library? I think what is good for the town and a revitalized Jones Library will be very good for the town. And this is Dan. I, I go to Amherst downtown all the time. Uh, I, I want you to tell us a little bit more about what the library would be in the future uh, once it's built, uh, what kind of attraction uh, it will be for people, not only in Amherst, but from the surrounding communities? So right now we have a, a beautiful historic building that is very difficult for people to use. It's a rabbit warren of small rooms, of stairways that lead to no place. It has its children's room on three different levels. It has virtually no teen space. It's English, English as a second language program doesn't have dedicated space, so they have to meet wherever they can um, throughout, the, throughout the library. We did a study of what the library needed. What would, what would the space, adequate space be? So we're going to provide the adequate space that the library needs. We're going to provide an attractive and open and usable layout 
for the library. We're going to update the technology. We're going to expose spaces in the library, beautiful spaces in the library um, that haven't been exposed before. We're going to make the library ADA compliant. We're going to make it accessible to people. Uh, and we're going to make it the most his, most environmentally sustainable building, or one of the most in um, in the town. And what we've seen, if you look, at, Holyoke's renovated its library. West Springfield's re renovated its, its its library. Athol has renovated its library. If you look at where library renovations have taken place, what the record is is they generate. A greater life in the downtown, greater cultural uh, vitality for the town, and we expect that the renovated and expanded Jones will do the very same thing for our great town. And just a quick follow-up. Um, some of the critics have felt that the library project, while they would support it, think it's too big. It's too much money. Why do we need to do all of that? What do you say to those critics? What I say is we are not doing uh, anything beyond what is needed. We did a very careful assessment of what was needed for the library. And that assessment led to the proposal. That proposal was then vetted by experts at the state level, the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. And they gave us uh, initially 13 million, now about $15 million for the renovation and expansion of the library because they were convinced that the library that we were planning and the library that we were proposing is exactly the the library that the town of Amherst uh, that the town of Amherst needs. Look, Amherst has many mottos. One of its mottos should be Amherst is a progressive town, it just hates change. So there are a lot of things that people love in the town that need to be changed that some people don't want to see changed. Every time the question of the library has been put to a vote in the town, and it's been put to a vote in the town many times, not just once. Once it was put on the ballot just as, should we, should we do this? Should we authorize the borrowing for the library? But every time there has been a trustee election over the course of the last decade, when those elections were contested and the opponents of the library ran for the trustees, good people with good visions, they lost every time, including in this last election in November of 2023. So to the extent that you say elections reflect what people want, the elections in the town of Amherst have suggested people want to renovate and expand at Jones. So Austin Sarrett, this is Bill. I fully support the idea that the people of the town of Amherst get to decide what they want and how they should spend their money. From the outside, it does strike me that $46 million is a lot of money for a building, even if it's the world's most beautiful, useful, community-oriented building. And I'm wondering how you address the size of this project. The size of the project is exactly what is needed. We'll add about 15,000 square feet to the, uh, the current facility. Uh, the size of the library is appropriate for what it is that we're going to try to do. Bill, if you've ever built anything, you know that what you start with is you start with examining what is called the program. What are the spaces we need and how large do those spaces have to be? And that's what we did. And we came to the judgment that we came to, which is that we needed to add square footage. And what's happened, of course, this library should have been renovated 
and built years ago. So uh, delay has not been the friend of uh, has not been the friend of the cost of the project. It was originally thought to be thirty six million dollars. It's now forty six million dollars. We've caught been caught up in the cycle of inflation the way everything else has been caught up in the cycle of inflation. I want to come back, and after we take a break, I want to talk to uh, Town Council President Lynn Grismer and ask her about the money. I want to ask about the almost $16 million in two allotments from the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners and an initial $14 million grant, additional couple million dollars from pandemic money. Um, and, and I want to ask her about this $10 million. I wanted to explain that it's not that exclusion. But before... Before we take that break, I just want to point out something that I learned um, about our library, which is that a lot of these libraries in this region, well, across the United States, came into effect from large, you know, uh, tycoons, as we used to call them, these benefactors who built libraries often in their own name in these small towns because the income tax came into effect. And when the income tax came into effect, there was a provision that if they donate some of their money, to charitable causes that they could get a tax break um, and not have to pay taxes on that amount of income that they're donating to build these things. And in fact, that's when we saw these libraries sprout up all over the place. In this region, many of them are 100 years old. We're built around 1912, 1914, 1916. And the reason uh, why that's a moment is because these 100-year-old buildings need to be maintained, just like uh, Professor Sarich just said that... Uh, a lot of his uh, overdue maintenance. We're going to come back and talk to Town Council President Lynn Grismer about this right after this. The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Don't go through another year with that awful joint pain. Call QC Kinetics right now and make 2024 the year you're back to living a normal life again. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. These are all natural treatments that can repair and restore that damaged tissue, giving you pain-free movement again. QC Kinetics has tens of thousands of satisfied patients around the country, people who had knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain, who were able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. If 
you have pain from an old injury or pain associated with arthritis, you need to check this out. The future of medicine is here. Regenerative treatments from QC Kinetics. Make the call now so you can get the most out of 2024. Get back to doing what you love. And don't forget, you can use your HSA and FSA funds. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Just call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back. We're continuing our conversation with the chair of the uh, Jones Library uh, Board of Trustees, Austin Sarat, the professor at Amherst College, and also with the town council president in Amherst, Lynn Grismer, and the council approved borrowing of $10 million. And I guess my first question is, why was the council's approval even necessary, Lynn? So... Thank you for asking that question. When the town authorized borrowing, the council has to vote to approve that authorization, okay? And the reason that we had to go back and vote this again is because the total cost of the library has increased from 36 million to 46 million. But you have to understand how public buildings are built. And in this case, specifically, there are three major sources of money. One is the town, that's 15.8 million. That's not getting any bigger. Another is the Mass Board of Library Commissioners. That's also now about 15 million. And the rest is fundraising from the Jones Library trustees and friends of the library. And that money has already started coming in. We've already received over $2 million of money from Mass Board of Library Commissioners. The trustees are getting ready to transfer some money that they have raised already to us. And yet we have not even spent the first 2 million. So while you authorize the maximum amount that the total project costs, because you are required to do that by the state, the reality is we have already, we will never borrow that full amount because we are already getting money in as we work on this project. So if you look at the cash flow that we have been using as we've had this discussion in the council, you realize that by the time we borrow our money, meaning the town's money, the interest rate is the only thing that leads to any increase in the project. There is some short-term borrowing. There always was going to be short-term borrowing. It's like when you build a house, you say, I need to have a construction loan, and then you borrow against that construction loan. And once the house is built, then you have a final loan. Our final loan for the town will only be for 15.8 million. All of the other loans, the construction loans will be done by then. And the reason they'll be done is because Mass Board of Library Commissioners pays us over a six-year period. They've already paid once. They have five more installments to go. They may actually pay us faster, which is good because that means it comes in earlier and it reduces any amount that has to get borrowed. The trustees have already raised over $9 million in pledges. And again, they turn that over the, to the town as they have it. 
So what you're doing while you're constructing and moving into construction is you're actually already collecting money. You're reducing the amount you're ever going to borrow. And therefore, the project in this case is going to cost us no more than it was two, year, two and a half years ago when we first voted. So why was it called? I mean, it is noteworthy that councilors voted 12 to nothing with one member, <laughs> uh, Councilor Alicia Walker, abstaining. Um, but uh, you, you, you voted overwhelmingly to do it, and yet it was described as one of the most difficult, well, most trying votes ever. What made it so trying? This project has had its um, supporters and its detractors. Uh, and you already, in the earlier part of this program, um, Austin talked about the size of the library, which is one of the issues and so forth, that people say, gee, this is more library than we need. I want to paint a different picture for this library. This library is part of what Amherst would call its community center. Now, that doesn't mean everything will be in one place. For example, there's no gym in this library, but it is going to have the various features that Austin has already discussed. It's also going to house our very, very treasured Civil War tablets in an entire room that's devoted to the history of Amherst with regard to the Civil War, particularly the Black history of Amherst. And so it comes to the point, it gets to the point where it actually is cultural. It's a gathering place. Yes, it is a place where people have books, but it's also a place where pe people come to learn different languages. So when you think of this as a cult, a community center, then you have a much better full vision of why it's important. Well, I, I should, by way of disclosure, I um uh, I've always loved going to the Jones and, uh, you know, I'm a CW Mars member. And I remember when I was speaking about Guantanamo, one of my favorite moments was when the League of Women Voters hosted an event where the Jones was packed. I love it as a community gathering place. And Amherst is such a rich community. Um, Dan. Uh, my question, when, when this project uh, construction begins, will the library uh, be closed for a certain period of time? What's the vision for that? Yes, the library has to move out of the library and we're in the process of trying to locate that space and um, and the two branch libraries will remain open, but there will also be another physical location where the staff and other parts of the library are located. Uh, that disruption will happen for about 18 months to two years. So Austin, Sarah, and final, we have only about a minute left, but uh, you are going to be the chair of the uh, Jones trustees for uh, up until I think January of 2026. Um, do you, when do you expect this project to be completed in the minute we have left? Well, our hope is to really uh, get the construction bid and then to approve a general contractor in March of 2024. The project will take a couple of years once we have broken, uh, once we have broken ground. Well, um, hey, libraries are at the soul of the Amherst community, as they are at most communities around this region, and uh, we really look forward to it happening. And uh, thank you both. Your incredible leadership uh, makes the community that it is today. Thank you, Amherst, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. This is the first day of Kwanzaa. Um, we wish you a uh, 
holiday of uh, great memories, and uh, we can't wait to join you tomorrow. Like my granny hands out food. Lord, you let you take all of these. And you might like this one too. Oh, my brain. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op kitchen is always cooking. Get ready-to-go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Order sandwich platters or anything platters for lunchtime, party time, or any time. You like to bake? The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground-up flour and grains, stone-milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven, bread and brownies, cakes and cookies. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. Massachusetts Ice Hockey hits the ice at the Mullen Center for the first time in 2024 for a clash against regional rival UConn on Friday, January 5th at 7 p.m. Enjoy an evening of family-friendly fun and see some of the best hockey in the Northeast. Get tickets at umassathletics.com slash tickets. WHMP North.